Well, 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 my friends and family. It's been a while since I've done an episode of For What It's Worth, but I am back. It is Black Friday. I have plans to buy exactly zero items today. I have exactly zero plans to engage with my fellow humanity today. Although there is a morbid curiosity about what it would be like to go to, say, Target or Best Buy or Walmart or Costco just to watch the absolute insanity. Most of the time you have to buy pay-per-view if you want to see a fight, but this is one of those days where you can basically go to any big box store and and you can probably uh, watch to your heart's content. For those of you who don't know, this is my podcast, which um, I think it has at least seven people that listen to it, which is pretty amazing to me. I do it because it's fun and I am interested in a far greater range of topics than the photography and book world can provide. And so I like talking about random things. Now, I've got exactly 21 minutes before I have to stop this to take a work, work call on this Black Friday. And I'm also waiting for the gas company, which means I can't turn my phone off, which I would normally do. So there could be a little bit of feedback here. But for those of you who were new, uh, who is this podcast for? Right? Why would you be here? Why would you listen to this? I just want to give you something that may set the table a little bit to tell you if you're in the right place. And if you're not in the right place, that's perfectly fine too. You can leave because there's a lot of good podcasts out there. This is for anyone who survived the Tang and Bran years here in America. Let me repeat that. This podcast is for anyone who survived the Tang and Bran years here in America. Now, for those of you who don't know, which I'm guessing is not really many people out there wouldn't know this, but back in the day... 70s, I'm guessing, Tang was this powder drink mix that the astronauts apparently used on one of the space missions. And suddenly, this miracle of all miracles was made available to the general public, the heathens, the unwashed masses that were my family. And yes, Tang crept its way into our vernacular, into our subconscious, and into our guts. Now, God knows what was in this stuff. I don't know if you can still get it, That would be kind of a miracle in itself. But Tang was like this thing that your parents just immediately said, well, it has to be good. The astronauts are using it. And so suddenly Tang was in our family, this orange powder that I don't know what it was. To me, it reminded me of Pop Rocks. If you remember eating Pop Pop Rocks and maybe washing it down with Dr. Pepper, remember that era? And everyone's like, God, I can't believe the cancer rates today. But anyway, the other second part of this for who this is for is not just Tang, but Bran. And I don't know if you remember this craze when it swept the nation, but the Milner family was thankfully, thanks to my father, was mired in the middle of this as well. Bran, imagine you get a box in the mail from Amazon and you take that box and you put it in a shredder that shreds it down to like microfiber levels, just maybe a slightly larger than micro. And you put that in a glass of water and try to drink it. That's what Bran is. Now, Bran was this crave, this craze about fiber. Got to have fiber in your diet. Well, you know what? Instead of just eating a healthy diet, why don't you eat this cardboard and then you'll be fine. And so my father, in his infinite wisdom, my father was a guy who bought every single piece of exercise equipment you could and then refused to use any of it. And it would pile up like, I don't know, like uh, baggage in the corner and, uh, It was awesome. And my dad would like balloon from like 30 and 40 pounds overweight, skinny, fat, skinny, fat his whole life. He hated me because I was skinny all the time. 
that's another story. But one day, my father comes home. It's late. It's dark. It's winter in Indiana. Everyone is miserable. It's dark at 3 p.m. It's cloudy. It's flat. Nothing sexy. And my dad comes home and gets my brother and sister and I, takes us to the kitchen table, and takes a glass of tap water and tosses in a spoonful of bran, which, by the way, does not dissolve in water, and puts it in front of all three of us and says, drink it. Now, my brother and I, I think we're like, pick your battles, man. Pick your battles. We're not going to win this one, so you might as well get it over with. And it was like, hold your nose, pour it down, and leave as quickly as possible. My sister, on the other hand, stubborn with a capital S, and she's like, I'm not drinking that. And he's like, oh, yeah, you are. She's like, uh, no, I'm not. And he's like, well, you're not leaving the table until you do. And she's like, well, I guess I'm going to camp out here for a while because I'm not drinking it. So anyway, long story short, he forces her to drink it, which she, I think, puked up on the kitchen table. And who doesn't love a puke story? And so uh, my sister and I still talk about this, the, the, the joyless parenting that my father would have from time to time. And he was probably ticked off at work and came home was like, I'm going to take this out on my kids like a good parent should. Anyway, if this story sounds familiar to you in any way, you're going to love this podcast. I also do Hero of the Week and Goat of the Week. And when I say goat, I could interchange that with ass or stooge. I don't mean greatest of all time. I mean stooge or ass. Hero of this week is two, twofold. One is whoever made the mechanical pencil, because I have a problem with mechanical pencils. I have a fetish. I have a pencil fetish. And I just ordered a new mechanical pencil, which, it, which has a, 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 an aspect of it, a piece of tech inside this mechanical pencil that is mind-blowing. And when I get it, I'll share it with you because it's going to make all of you probably cry. So whoever made the mechanical pencil, you're a hero of the week. Second hero is Ken Kaufman, K-A-U-F-M-A-N. Kenny, K with, with, uh, Ken with two N's. Ken Kaufman was a, was a birder who did a book called The King Bird Highway. And if you haven't read this, get it, read it. It's awesome. It's about obsession, but it's about obsession on a budget, which is great. It's about his year, doing a big year, traveling around, looking at North American bird species. I've never met Ken Kaufman, apparently, in the birding world. He's a big deal. He's written a bunch of other books, but King Bird Highway is where I would start. Goat of the week, man, it was hard. And I'm going back a couple of weeks because I haven't really been paying attention to much in the news in the past couple of weeks, other than the fact that there's a nice feisty little uh, variant coming out of Africa right now that's got flights canceled and countries on red lists and all kinds of stuff. So for those of you people out there who just keep telling me this whole thing's over, uh, man, I guess goat of the week really could apply to a lot of people. I've narrowed it to two, but anyone out there who's downplaying the pandemic and like acting like, and I have very close friends who are in this category, who just can't be bothered, or are so politically radicalized that they just cannot admit that this is around. Now, remember, I still have friends who are telling me that COVID doesn't exist in their city. And we're talking one of the 10 largest cities in America. They're like, nope, not here, don't have it. This person's already had COVID. Their friends and family have had COVID. Nope, we don't have it, not here. And this is a college-educated person. So anyone who's been radicalized by the American political establishment to think that this is a hoax or doesn't exist or just downplaying or it's over. Now, I have a lot of friends, too, who are just very entitled, who just feel like they can't be bothered and they want to get back with their lives. And they're traveling like mad 
and acting as if that's a completely safe thing to do and a smart thing to do and that the rules of the pandemic for some weird reason don't apply to them. They're like, oh, but that's only for this and I'm this or I have three shots or I can't. It's crazy. I've said this from day one. I know it's a little harsh. Might want to sit down and take this one. We deserve everything that happens to us. We do. We deserve to melt down because we refuse to act like adults. We've lost track of the science. We've lost track of math, science, truth, and fact. And we like fantasy. We like sci-fi. And I get it. Look, when I saw Star Wars for the first time, I, was, I just wanted to hit pause on life. I just wanted to say, okay, everything else needs to stop for a minute. I need to be able to comprehend what this means. I think I know what a laser is now. Is this, is this real? Is this a documentary? Or is this, or is this a fantasy? I was in, you know, third grade or whatever, but it took me a minute. So if you're one of these deniers or you're just complicating the problem by not doing the right thing, then I guess you're a go-to. But the two that jump out this week are Paul Gozer, this gem of a human being from Arizona. What a, what a tool this guy is. Happens to be a member of the, of the U.S. Uh, Congress, which is, I was going to say terrifying and surprising, but really anymore, that's not, that's the case. He's not even the worst person in there. But this bozo, who's the one who made the film about a little, uh, caricature film about killing AOC and then attacking the president. Now, if you and I did this, yeah, we would have a close encounter with a cattle prod in about five minutes. But this is a, a white privileged one percenter who's in the Congress and the rules don't apply to these people. They can basically do and say whatever they want, regardless of party. We have decades of history to prove this. And so Gozer makes this film and then doubles down and keeps retweeting it. And they censor him from the Congress. But that doesn't mean anything. There's no real penalty for any of these people. And then, of course, everyone on his team flying their colors. It's like the Crips and the Bloods. Everyone flies the color, downplays it, denies it, acts like morons. Yeah, that's, that's where we are. We have, we're, we're, it, it's an orgy of stupidity in America right now. And this is just another example. But the one that maybe takes the cake for me is Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, who basically lied about his vaccination status and then went out and claimed all kinds of preposterous things that only happen when you are so detached from everyday people and so detached from reality and also surrounded by people who, have, who probably in his life for at least 30 years have been telling him he's great. And the truth is, he is a great football player. He really is. He's a great quarterback, one of the best of the modern era. And that's enough for most people to allow him to do and say whatever he wants. And the organization is guilty and the league is guilty and he's guilty. And basically what he did was when he was asked, asked about his vaccination status, he gave a very gray, nebulous answer, but in essence was telling people he was. But actually, in actuality, he wasn't. He'd gone out to some homeopathic person who had done some immune system thing, which in he was told was equivalent of being vaccinated, which is obviously not true. It's not accurate. Not that I'm against homeopathic stuff. I love that stuff, but it's, a, it's apples and oranges. But in essence, he's surrounded by not only teammates, he's surrounded by hundreds of people in an organization who do not have the luxury of a safety net like he does, a financial safety net. If they get sick, if they bring it home to a parent, a kid or whatever, it's a whole different thing. But that's not the, the worst part of the story. That's almost to be expected with modern athletes now. You know, they do and say, and Twitter in the hands of these athletes is one of the most terrifying things you're ever going to see because the filters are off and they will do and say things. It's almost like YouTube comments where you read YouTube comments and you're like, wow, no wonder the world's going to end. Like this is, I think YouTube comments are fantastic. But the second part of the story that really gets it going is that instead of saying, you know what? Yeah, my bad. 
I was deceptive. I didn't really give a straight answer. I didn't get vaxxed. That's not cool. I didn't wear a mask in places where I should have. Um, and also, like, you know, I know I'm basing this on pseudoscience. I'm inquiring from people who have no medical background or training whatsoever, and those are kind of my sources for my information. He, if he would have done any of those things, people would have said, all right, dude, you made a mistake, whatever, move on. And this is another classic example of famous people who instead of just killing a story by doing one small thing right, they double down on wrong. And so what he does is come out and claims that he's been attacked by the woke mob, which is hilarious when you have a rich white one percenter who has every single thing he could possibly conceive in his life at his fingertips, who, it, who basically claims they're being attacked by the mob. That is just amazing to me, to be that level of detachment. It kind of makes me think, that he doesn't have any close friends, because if he did, that's when your friends step in. Your friends go, dude, um, uh, sorry, but you're being, you, you know, you're wrong. For, that's what friends are for. Real friends, true friends go, dude, you're wrong. Make an apology. And you go, oh, man, I trust this person. He's known me forever. I think a lot of times, and it's hard, I would imagine, for someone in, that's that famous and successful to have that many close friends. Um, and also, the other thing he did that I found very bizarre, which is also a tell, in my opinion, is he described himself as a critical thinker. That is like a photographer describing themselves as someone that has an eye. That just drives me insane. Uh, real photographers and the really good photographers would never say, I'm really good. You know, I have an eye. I'm just so good. And how many times have you heard that? Well, I picked up a camera two weeks ago, and all I know for sure is I've got a real eye. I see the world in such a unique way. And my response is always, no, you don't. Because if you did, you would never say that. So when he describes himself as a critical thinker, um, because I think it was, you know, he was on Jeopardy or something, and everyone equates that for whatever reason with being some savant, intellectual savant, that, uh, he's my go to the week. And Gozer is right there like wingman. Gozer is split out to the right. He's about ready to do a button hook, and Rodgers is going to hit him. He's going to pump, pump fake at five yards, go deep on the sidelines. That's a play that worked in flag football 100% of the time. Billy, you're this bottle cap. I want you to run out, button hook, five yards. I'm going to pump fake, then go deep. And it worked every time, 70% of the time. Okay, let's talk. Let's move on to some points here. I have been on a reading spree in the past couple of days. Um, I've read a book a day basically for the past three or four days. And that may sound like a lot, or that may sound like some crazy, impressive uh, reading schedule. It's really not. If you, if you eliminate distractions and read for two hours, you can read a huge percentage of books that are out there. And that's all I'm doing. I'm, not, I'm just not watching TV and I'm not surfing the web. That's the only thing that I've eliminated and I've just substituted with a book. And I'll tell you, it makes me feel a whole hell of a lot smarter than surfing the web and uh, watching TV, reading these books. But I've read some things. And one of the things that keeps popping up, which is an intriguing topic for me, which is climate change. And of course, now I just, you know, there's, there's stories now and you hear all the time that you can't use that terminology anymore because it's been so politicized and radicalized, especially here in America, where one party now is like, oh, no, no, we're calling it extreme weather. We're not actually calling it climate change anymore. Whatever. Again, it's an orgy of stupidity here. But climate change is fascinating to me because if we can't use that terminology anymore and so many people out there are trying to present this data and half of the population just goes, nah, 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 I don't want to hear it, nah, 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 what are you going to do about it? 
And when I look at the major systems in America that are faltering right now, education, healthcare, finance, uh, all of these, energy, and you say to yourself, well, which one of these systems are you going to fix? If you don't fix climate change, then what's the point of fixing anything else? But to fix climate change, you got to fix education first. Because if half the population thinks it's a hoax, then you say, well, okay, they've been radicalized, and radicalized people tend to be undereducated. So maybe we have to fix education. I've said it from day one. I think education is the number one thing we have to fix. But again, there's no real effort to do that. Like there's no real effort to go away from fossil fuels, for example. Yeah, there's talk about going away and there's people making electric cars. And we're going to talk about this in a minute, the detachment from the electric car side and also the sort of the, the obnoxiousness of the electric car movement and also the condescension that you get from people often who drive electric cars and how the fact that none of this really helps anything. And also it's a drop in the bucket that at this point with energy production in America and drilling ramping up at least 10% plus every year over year of year over year over year, it's going to be tricky. So that's my question to you guys is how do you address climate change in this environment? Because I don't know. And it's fascinating, kind of interesting to me. It makes me actually want to go do a climate change story and present it in a way that sort of catches people off guard to get them thinking about it differently. I don't have time to do that and it'll never happen, but I'm thinking about it. Point number two, let's talk about photo archiving. I'm about to do a, hopefully a live film with a friend in Denmark, and we are going to be talking about archiving work. And the reason I bring this up is I keep running into people who say to me, it's arrogant to even think about an archive, number one, as a photographer. Number two, nothing of today will have any value in the future. That's another odd, odd, odd uh, idea that I keep getting people writing to me and saying, I don't care about my archive. I throw away everything except like the one thing I want from a shoot because none of this is going to have value. And that is so completely off base and misguided. I want to talk a little bit about that. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I was on Twitter the other day, as I am, like nine hours a day. Just kidding. I'm on Twitter because Blurb asked me to keep this account going back like seven years when I deleted all my other social accounts. It's the only real network I have left. And I'm on there, and I'm flipping through looking for uh, a Blurb thing. And I see a picture of mine that's not on Blurb. It's on someone else's site. It's a portrait I did in London about six years ago, six or seven years ago. And it was an image that was being used to uh, sell the author's talk or workshop or program or something or film that they had coming up, right? It's just a promotional picture, and it's a portrait I made of this person. And the person likes it. And every year, I relicense that image. I don't want to. I don't reach out trying to do that. I don't ask to do that. But I do it every year. It sells. And sometimes it sells more than once. That, in a nutshell, is everything I'm talking about. Do I just have that single image from that shoot? No. I have the whole take. Because... At some point, somebody's going to want to license it. Because guess what? It's a popular author, and there's not many portraits of this person. And this person happens to like it. So when, the, when these entities reach out and say, do you have any portraits, and can we utilize this, and whatever. And oh, by the way, every single time I've licensed that photo, which now is at least six or seven times, every single time I try to donate the fee, my, my fee for that licensing of that image. So and it's in Germany, Spain, the UK, it's been licensed all over. Not a single entity has allowed me to donate 
that fund. And I always say to them, look, don't pay me for it. Just take the money that you would pay me and put it into whatever donation or whatever foundation your organization donates to. Well, I think the sinking suspicion I have is that they don't have charities. They're not donating anything and that they're just, you know, they just don't have this as a possibility, which is so odd to me. Again, it's a little tiny example of how faltering our systems are, where obviously all of these organizations at that level should have charities where they're saying, okay, we were going to pay you whatever, 600 US dollars to license this portrait for this usage, and we'll take 600 in your name or anyone else's name, we will donate it to this other thing. So archiving to me is critical. If you're looking to uh, supplement your income going into your, your, your later years in life, I have a huge number of friends who are been photographers for decades who are licensing their imagery all the time. So if you're a young photographer and you think that you're not going to make anything of value, that's on you. That's because you've given up on trying to find something original or photographing things that actually matter in a larger scheme. It's not that you have to do that stuff all the time, but it's definitely interesting to think about topics that will have relevance moving forward. Perfect example, climate change. If I go down and photograph Elephant Butte Reservoir right now, which is at an all-time all -time low level. Sorry, taking a call there. It's at an all-time low level. If I photograph that now, in 10 years, that level we're at now might seem like paradise. And so I've got a, a historical document that will have relevancy really from now until the end of time. That's the kind of thing. Is it super sexy? No, but it's strategic. And if you've ever sat with anyone from a photo agency or an editor at a photo agency that's licensing images all day, it is a entire class in itself of recognizing the value in imagery. So do not give up on the idea of an archive, but just know this, it is not easy to create, and it is very time-consuming and very expensive to keep it over time. Film was a dream and very easy to do in comparison to digital. That's why I'm going to have a call with Fleming, and we're going to talk about how a couple of different archiving options because we're all sort of in the same boat of how do we do this and how do we keep doing this without losing everything. All right, I think my call was canceled. I don't know for sure. might have been an old meeting invite because... People are like, oh, you can't possibly be working on Black Friday. Yeah, this is not an official vacation day for Blurb. So we are working, people, to make your life better. Okay, so I talked about archiving. That was point number one. Let's just recap. Who's this for? Anyone who survived Tang and Bran years. The hero of the week is whoever made the mechanical pencil. And Ken Coffin and his birding exploits. And the goat of the week is Paul Gozer, the Republican stooge, and also Aaron Rodgers for just being detached, even though the kid throws a sick spiral, man, which does make up for a lot. But come on, man. Just man up, admit it, correct the situation, and move on. Number two, let's talk. I was talking earlier about climate change and how um, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm reading a book about climate change right now written by someone here in New Mexico. It's very good so far. It's easy to read. And sometimes climate change books can be kind of like eating bran. It can be terrifying and painful and things that kind of get stuck in parts of your body that you don't really want to acknowledge. But this is a good one. And so I'm reading this and, I'm, and this author sort of ends the introductory chapter with I'm still optimistic. I'm happy for her. I'm not. Because as a documentary photographer, I've seen the heart of darkness for a long time, and it is beating. Boom. It's got a strong pulse to it, and it just seems like everything that we're doing as human beings is leading us down the wrong way. For example, if we cut carbon emissions right now, 
boom, 100% turned off the world. It would still take decades to reverse the direction that we're going. It's like a cruise ship. If you cut the power on a cruise ship, it doesn't just stop. It, it drifts for miles before the thing comes to a stop. That's kind of a good analogy, I think, for climate change. And how do you do this as an individual? Are you like me, a, a, a jaded sadist that just says, you know what, I'm not really, yeah, I'll, I'll make a veiled effort. I'll do this and that. But like in the grand scheme of things, am I ever going to make a change? Probably not. Um, I have friends who are on the surface absolutely and utterly dedicated to environmentalism. They also fly around the world all the time on planes and don't seem to find that ironic. So if you're trying to reduce your carbon footprint, yes, you can do things at home. If you are absolutely mandated to get on planes and fly around for whatever reason, fine. If you're going on vacation and flying literally around the world multiple times while harping on environmentalism, I find that a bit hypocritical. That's just me. And another one of the hypocritical things is the electric car movement. I, I happen to love electric cars. If I could get an electric van, I would. If I could get an electric, a small electric, legitimate, either all-wheel or four-wheel drive, which is coming, but they're all going to be expensive and kind of like soft-roading, um, you know, shopping mall all-wheel drives. I need something legitimate that I can use in mud, snow, rock, and get back to sort of more remote places. That's not coming for a while. And, and, but the, the number one detachment to me, which was brought to my attention yesterday, is that Tesla, which is a very interesting company, by the way, and Elon is a very interesting guy, love him or hate him. He's, he's definitely different. And he's, he's done an incredible amount of stuff between the cars and the space. I don't know, that's, he's kind of unique in the world today. Again, love him or hate him, hard to deny the results. When that rocket shot up into space and then came back and landed on a ship, again, it was like me seeing Star Wars. I was like, uh, time out. Did that just happen? Was that real? Can I touch your face? I was really blown away. But Tesla just released a, a car called the Tesla Plaid, which every rich techie one percenter is going to want to get their hands on, which makes me hate it even more because those people do less with more than any group I've ever seen in my life. This is a car, it's the fastest production car you can buy in the world, apparently. And that's gas or electric. It smokes every gas-powered production. We're talking McLarens, Ferraris, Porsches. Nothing is faster than this Tesla. It has a drag race mode. It does like the quarter mile in nine seconds. And you know how fast that is? This, it's beating uh, sport bikes. It'll beat a, a, a Hayabusa, Suzuki, right off the showroom floor. It'll smoke these things. Why? Why of all things did you build that? That's the part of this movement that makes me believe we have no chance in hell. You have a general public who is fighting to survive, who is in the worst economic situation they've been in in decades. You have generations of kids now that are not going to have it as good as their parents or their grandparents. We're trending in the wrong direction. The only way that we have any chance in health, the only possible way, is if that technology not only becomes available to the general public, but becomes effortless and financially feasible for the average person to say, yes, this makes sense. The only people on the earth who can af remotely afford something like a Tesla Plaid are the, not only the one percenters, they're the fraction of the one percenters. And for them to make that and not put money into a inexpensive 
available everyday car is just blasphemy. It's just ridiculous. And it shows the ego and the detachment between reality and the story that everyone wants to believe, which is, oh, we're saving the world. Oh, I drive an electric car. I'm really making a, 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 a huge dent in the world. Unfortunately, you're not. It's good that you are. And again, if I could get something that worked for me, I would. If I could get a Tesla all-wheel drive that replaced my wife's 12-year-old RAV4, I would, and it was affordable, I would do it. I mean, what about making a car? Think about Kia and Hyundai and the price points of Kias and Hyundais in the Tesla world. That, to me, is the only interesting conversation to have. If you have the technology to build a Plaid and you have the ego to build a Plaid, then you can do this on a grand scale for tons of people. Even if it's car ownership, we have to rethink. And the shared car becomes more of a practical thing. Great. Who cares? Shared cars everywhere, low budget. You know, think of the Lada. Think of the, um, you know, these cars that are lower, uh, or back in the day, the Yugo that came here to the United States. You could buy a new Yugo for 4000 bucks. That's kind of what I'm talking about. But again, are we doing that? No. Are we going to do it? No. Will oil and gas allow that? No. Will the auto industry do that? No. Right now, there's no incentive because the world is still functioning to a degree. And so none of these people in power, none of the CEOs, none of the execs, they do not have a care in the world. They're selling boxes. And if the public tells them, I want an eight miles per gallon boxy car that doesn't serve any particular genre well, they're going to build it because they want to make money. And so I think we're host. So I don't hold out this optimistic hope. And again, I'm not like a pessimist. I'm more of a realist looking around and saying, well, if I saw any indicator in any way, shape, or form in this last uh, climate summit that just went down, I think it was in Scotland. What a joke. Again, a bunch of white detached 1% world leaders sitting down discussing this stuff with absolutely no stake in the game for them. They're set. They have all the money in the world they're ever going to need. They're going to have health care for life. They have no, nothing to worry about, which is why you watch those summits and you go, boy, when the end comes, my advice is to paddle into the first or second of those set waves because the, the subsequent waves are going to crush you. All right, let's talk point number three. I want to talk about a magazine that ran an article I was hoping to read because it was an article that came out about a very fr a fringe sport. And, it, and, the, and the, the, the teaser for the article was, these are um, some of the most amazing photos that have ever been done of this sport. And in my back of my head, I was like, oh, I know someone who's a photographer in that fringe sport. I wonder if that's the person. That was the, the reason I went to this article. I didn't necessarily want to read the article, but then I thought, you know, okay, why not? I'll give it a try. Now, I've been hearing since the invention of the internet that the internet, and this is by people who are hoping it would work, and also for tech geeks who are like, oh, this is amazing. I've got, you know, the, the internet is just going to be amazing. And, uh, and also, a lot of times, these people toss in print is dead. So I go and I try to watch this story. And this is running in a major men's magazine. It's one of the most popular men's magazines out there. These are not magazines I will typically read because I just am not that interested in men-specific topics and I find them kind of cheesy. And, and you know, I, there's other stuff I'd rather read. So I try to look at this article. And again, I've heard for years that the web is the answer and the solution for photographers. This is the solution to the problem. 
it's the web, and this is such an amazing delivery thing. And a couple of years ago, the New York Times, I think, did, did a piece that everyone in the industry was like, oh, you got to check this out and, and look at how they've done this. I couldn't get through two pages of it. The overall design and the, and the way that the, the work was presented through the website with advertising over the top of it, I was like, this isn't a story. This is a delivery mechanism for advertising, and the story is a secondary piece. They're just trying to sell random stuff. So when I see this, this fringe sport piece, I try to go to the article, and the same thing happens. As I'm using my right thumb to flip on the phone, I am bombarded with Versace ads that are, are kind of like GIF-like, motion, flashing, enormous. And the Versace ads are overtaking the entire screen of my phone. And then also when they're rolling off, you realize they're four times the size of the actual images in the article. Then the advertising takes on the form of the written word, which then blends in with the article. So you think you're moving on to a piece of the article when in fact you are now reading an advertisement. I would say it was 90-10, 90% advertising, 10% story. And after about 10 seconds, I was like, this is the single worst experience of trying to ingest an actual photo essay or story that I've had in a long, long time. And it feels like that, that the web is becoming worse to deliver, at least in terms of partnering with these, with these companies. I think the web is still an amazing thing if you have your own website and you control the narrative on that website, you control the advertising, you control the look and feel, I think the web is a wonderful place to deliver stuff. It really is. And in tandem with print, it's even better. So if you've got a print arm and you have a digital arm that you control, it's wonderful. It's when your work as a photographer, your hard work, or as a writer, your blood, sweat, and tears gets put in the hand of an, of an editorial outlet that is owned by a conglomerate that is doing nothing other than trying to increase revenue by blasting you with ads. Ad, 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 ad. My advice to you is stop giving your work to these entities. Cut them off. Because at some point, if enough people cut these, these groups off and these editorial outlets off, they will adapt and they will change because they're just get, the well's going to dry up. Is that going to happen? No, because photographers are going to keep, keep uh, giving stuff to them uh, right and left. That's what, we've been talking about this conversation for 20 years, and it's still kind of the same thing. Okay, let's talk about a little bit about power and control. And this is point four, I think, something like that. Point four is about power and control. I heard something bizarre the other day, and it kind of made, it made me, I don't know, genuflect on our culture and society here in America, which is a pretty cool, America's a pretty cool place. We got a lot going on. We do a lot of cool things, and we got a lot of great people here. And then we got the rest of us, and, you know, again, the unwashed masses like me, out doing questionable things for questionable reasons with questionable talent, but that's just the way it is. Uh, but I heard, I heard something idiotic the other day, and that is the concept that vaccine passports lead to a social credit score just like China. Now, for whatever reason, the right here in America, China, is, China and Russia, obviously, major uh, adversaries here to us in the U.S., historically. And now, you know, everyone's saber-rattling right now. The Chinese president had said some things recently that sounded like a bad video game, like we're going to crush your head against a stone wall kind of thing. And that's coming from the president of China. That sounded kind of negative. I was like, that's kind of a downer. Be cool, buddy. Russia, obviously, Putin's a sociopath. He's been doing this forever. These, these people are legit 
whacked, right? So, we, you know, and not that we aren't, but it takes one to know one. So we can look out and go, wow, these, these people are crazy. But China, it's weird. The right here with Trump were so in bed with China, um, it was kind of astounding. And actually, now that I think about it, Trump and Russia were like hand in hand. He, he bowed down to Putin every single day at a level that is just historically unprecedented. And yet the right was totally fine with that. But the second a vaccine passport comes out, the same people on the right turn around and say, oh, we're turning into China after they've been basically allies for the last four years, which is kind of bizarre to think about. But here's the point, regardless of party. Vaccine passports don't lead to a social credit score, because if they did, we'd already have it. Because, oh, by the way, vaccine passports have been around my entire life. So a lot of times when I have friends who talk about vaccine passports, there are people who live very small lives who don't travel. So for them, the yellow book, in quotations, the yellow book, they don't know what I'm talking about when I say that. And I have family members who I've said this to who are anti-vax people who then turned around and got COVID. Some have been sick for a while now. And I said, look, you know, vaccines aren't new. I, I've had to show my yellow book many times. And they're like, what's a yellow book? That's, that's the point here. Again, under education, not understanding vaccine passports have been around. If you get off the plane in Cambodia in 1996 and you're going to go work with an NGO, the first thing they said to you when you got off the plane was, let me see your yellow book. Because they wouldn't take you in the field if you weren't prepared to be in the field. And part of the preparation of being in the field was being vaccinated against what would kill you or potentially put them at risk by you getting sick. And that is exactly what happened to me in 1996, getting off the plane in Cambodia. That was probably the first or second time I'd been asked for my yellow book. I've been asked a million times since then. That's a part of it. So it's not going to lead to a social credit score. That's the right trying to scare you into saying, oh, my God, you know, your rights are being infringed by having a vaccine passport. Um, and also, by the way, the government doesn't have to create this, this sense of fear and domination because the right-wingers have already done that. They're out there right now telling you that this is what's happening, that this is one step towards socialism or communism. Most of the time, they can't define what those two things are. Or critical race theory, they can't define what that is again and again. So social media companies already created this, gave it to us, and we willingly paid them to take advantage of us in this exact same way. So if you think a vaccine passport is some infringement and yet you're on Facebook and you don't see the irony in that, that you've already given everything you have away for free and they've mined you for the last decade and you're okay with that, but suddenly there's a vaccine passport. Again, under education, people don't seem to understand because they've been radicalized politically to the point where they can't see straight. But here's the, here's the secondary wrinkle of this story. And I don't know if anybody's been following this. I'm sure some people have. But China, over the last month or so, has, you know, China, internet is not, is not free or open in China, for those of you who don't know, as like some other countries in the world. But China, you know, clamps down. It's not like you can just pop on and search for whatever you want. It's a different scenario. But China's looking around at the internet and these free, free societies and cultures like ours, and they're kind of looking around and they're going, mm, I don't like the looks of that. I don't like, you know, look at what happened in 2016. Look at what happened in January 6th. And China's like, yeah, I don't think that's cool here. For, so we're going to do some changes. So China has changed algorithms in their country so that when you're accessing the internet, they are putting parameters and boundaries on you without you having a choice in the matter. So when you're flipping through on your phone, Every, I think, I don't know what the duration is, but there's a break 
where everything pauses for five seconds and you lose whatever feed you're on, you lose for five seconds. And what that is, is a chance for you to walk away because what China is fearful of is quote unquote, mindless scrolling. And so they've looked at what's happening here and other places in the world where the internet is free and the, what is happening to the under 30 crowd. And they're saying, these are not the kind of people we want. We do not want unproductive influencers to be the next generation of Chinese. We need doctors and lawyers and engineers and whatever. And if we allow, quote unquote, mindless scrolling, we're going to end up with a bunch of people trying to be influencers and not with productive members of society. Now, the way they're going about doing this is typically ch typical Chinese, and maybe that's not a good thing. It's very different, obviously, than what we have here, where we have far more freedoms on a day-to-day -day basis. So how they're doing it. Now, the right has latched onto this as this is some sort of you know, Chinese mind control thing, all the while failing to admit sort of the underlying idea of like, okay, maybe we need to rethink what's happening with the internet here. But again, look at, look at Facebook. Look at the indiscretion again and again and again. Every month this year, there's been a Facebook uh, breakdown of some sort or a cover-up or admission of something that they lied about. Or, you know, we, this is an old story. We're, not, we're still not doing anything about it. And so I think what China's doing is looking and saying, look, we're going to lose control. Because misinformation and disinformation on social media is the primary delivery. And look at what happened in the U.S. You know, that turned the country inside out. They basically had a coup attempt on January 6th, and that was directly related to this freedom of the social media. And China's probably looking around like, um, not really something we want to provide here. So let's, let's, let's clamp down, if you will. All I'm saying is it's an interesting story. If you don't know about it, go do your own research. And I don't mean just look at an article on Facebook. I mean, actually do research. There's a big difference between research and Facebook. Let me just present that out there. And go look and see what's up. Okay, moving on here. Point number five is about uh, AG23. For those of you who don't know, this is a collaboration project. Historically, and going back to the beginning, this was a collaboration project between Beyond Clothing out of Seattle and Blurb. The difference... One of the differences between this and a lot of other projects I've been involved in is that in the printed piece and on the website, there was nothing about Beyond or Blurb. And that was a conscious decision from day one that this was not going to be a marketing exercise or brand catalog or anything like that. Both companies do marketing. Both companies have plenty of brand-associated marketing campaigns. Both companies are profitable. And so we said, look, we're not going to make money on this. We're going to lose money on this, but it's worth doing and it's fun. And we're going to build this community. And so we've done two issues so far. The third issue, I have the contributors lined up, but we haven't printed yet for a couple of reasons. And this is all new information, by the way, people. So my co-director, co-editor on the project, who was the director of Beyond Clothing, left to take a position at another company that's in an unrelated field. And so Beyond, as our partner on AG23, for the most part, is not going to be there anymore. And for those of you who don't know, because this just popped up in a conversation the other day with a photographer who was um, asking me about trying to get in a subsequent issue, and um, I told this story, and, and she said, well, that's not a big deal. You know, so what? I said, well, what you may or may not know is that Beyond paid every single penny <clears throat> of this entire project. Blurb didn't pay anything. Blurb did not give a single penny to this project. Beyond Clothing paid for everything. And when I say everything, I don't mean just the print run. 
I mean the designer, the website, the web designer, the legal, the merchandise, the stationery, the letterhead, the every single thing was done by Beyond. <clears throat> that, for the most part now, is gone. So we're at sort of an impasse, but here's the thing. A couple of weeks ago, I was sort of put into a position to sort of reanalyze <clears throat> my life in a way. And one of the things that really came out of that was, what, I, I, AG23 is something I feel like I haven't even started yet. Even though this is not a concept, we have two issues in hand. The first one is sold out. We have, all, we have the website. We have all these features. But in my head, I was like, I don't feel like I've even really started this yet. So <clears throat> I have decided to really double down on AG23 in building the community. And some of the things that I really want to do are, for one, start running features on the website that don't end up in the zine. For whatever reason, either they're not really print, print material or we just don't have room or it's a beginning of a story that eventually might, get, might be in the print version, but we want to at least advertise it and promote it for the person who's doing it. And so AG23 is not about me. It's about this community. But at the same time, I was like, man, I'm working on some stories that I think would be interesting. So I might start to do some features. And obviously, I was featured in the first issue of the zine. I did a piece about the game of Go. That wasn't, the story wasn't about me. It was about the game of Go. I'm going to continue that. I'm not necessarily looking to print my stuff in the zine. I think I'm going to reserve that space or we're going to reserve that space for other people. But I'm definitely going to start adding to the, to the website side of it. And what I'd like to do is build out the website so that there is a blog slash journal page where I can put more daily sort of small run stuff. Then I would like a tab that's just about digital features. So features that are not in the zine, but they're just digital. And I also want to break out the staff page because right now the staff page just links to my YouTube channel. But I really want you all to know about the four of us who are behind this right now. And my goal is that the staff expands over the years because I've had a lot of friends reach out and say, man, I would love to be a part of that in some way. I just don't know how to fit in. So this could be guest editors. This could be guest writers. This could be guest photographers. But that's sort of the direction that we're heading. And I'm holding off printing the third issue because I really want Blurb more involved on the support side without Blurb being involved on the marketing side. Because if this turns into a Blurb marketing campaign, the haters who are out there in force, by the way, the haters are going to hate this without ever having seen it. They're just going to see the Blurb. If there's a logo in it, if there's a Blurb, anything around this, the haters are going to say, oh, I knew it. I knew it all along. This is without ever having looked at it. And the reason I can say that is it's already happening. I had haters coming to me before we printed the first issue. The first person we ever met with accused us of stealing from them and getting rich off of them by doing this zine. So that tells you the level of detachment and like hypocrisy and weird angle that people will take towards something like this. The other thing I need to reiterate, because this came up in conversation with a photographer the other day who asked me if I knew about another print project that's happening in the photo space right now, a really cool project that I did know about. And I said, well, we're talking about apples and oranges here. The one thing that connects us to that person is that we are doing print, right? In the digital age, we, we have, we've really decided to double down on print. That's what binds us. But I said, their publication is several hundred dollars to buy this publication. And I said, ours is free. And that is critical to me that our zine remains free. Secondarily, my audience for the zine, our audience that we are really bent on introducing this work to is not the art and photography industries. I do not care one second what art and photography say about my zine. My demographic, our demographic for this zine 
is 18 to 35-year-old people who are unrelated to art and photography. I want to put the zine in the hands of people who don't know what the Mescalero Apache Reservation is. They do not know what the Panama Canal is. They don't know where it is. They don't know anything about these stories. Regen agriculture. They're not even sure that there's a problem with agriculture. This is the kind of audience that I'm after, is that I want people who are not used to being exposed to these stories to see this and see an object that is not fancy, that's not precious, that doesn't create a barrier just in the ingredients that comprise the object itself. And sometimes a very expensive publication is a bit like a Fabergé egg. It sits on the shelf where no one touches it because they don't want to mess it up. And I get that. I have plenty of those in my house. Not Fabergé eggs. I'm talking about books, uh, fancy books. And so that's the gist of AG23. And my goal is to really start creating work for the, for the, for the, the entity, the culture of AG23. And I've started to hashtag things AG23 Society because I think that's the way that we are sort of looking at this long term is that there is a potential for this to turn into a small society of people around the world who have an interest in promoting understanding through dialogue and art. That's it. They're centrist. They're not drawing lines in the sand. They're telling stories and showing stories that are done by everyday people, not just professional creatives, but everyday people who oftentimes have amazing stories to tell. So we have a lot of work to do, and we have no resources to do it, and we also have very little time to do it. But it's something that I'm focused on uh, very, very directly. It's one of the four main campaigns that I have. I have Blurb, I have Shifter, I have AG23, and then I have sort of my future of working as a creative myself. And those are how I would describe it is those are all four cars on a highway going in the same direction. But as of today, they're all separate vehicles. And my goal is to make them all one vehicle on the highway traveling in the same place. And it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of people doing a lot of things behind the scenes. And that's sort of the impasse that we're at now. But that is the update as to where we are. And, uh, and so we're going to be working on this over the next couple of weeks to try to figure out what the next step is. But um, that's it in a nutshell. <clears throat> the secondary part of this, which I guess would be the point, point five, point six is that I am now going to be working part-time out of the Santa Fe Photo Workshops facility here in Santa Fe. Because number one, I do not have internet at my house. And it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. And 5G, T-Mobile, internet is not coming here, of course. Um, and I keep, I've tried every single service available here. And the fastest I can get is 1.5 megabits a second, which is no, no faster than my phone. So I'm going to keep using my phone here at the house. But the Santa Fe Workshops was nice enough to say to me, hey, look, why don't we create a little cubby for you? Because we are a creative industry and a creative community. And why wouldn't we be working together? And why wouldn't we want you to work out of here? So hats off to Santa Fe for allowing me to do this. I've not set it up yet. Um, there's a logistical stuff. And we're obviously on a holiday for most people. So it's not happening right now. It won't happen until probably early December. But I'm going to be able to have a place that has actual internet, which is kind of nice when you consider the amount of content I'm on the hook to produce. But also when it comes to podcasting and having a, a setup somewhere where I can bring people in and really create content on a, on a streamlined basis. Because right now everything is portable mobile in the field for me to do anything. So that's kind of a nice little, uh, nice little touch here. And I think um, the AG23... The Santa Fe workshops. I'm I'm in the process of re rebooting Shifter. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to totally rebuild Shifter into a 
mechanism that is more than anything else an example of what I've been preaching for years, which is for creatives to create their own ecosystem and not give their life to the big tech companies and the social media companies. And so uh, uh, someone I, I respect immensely was able to sit with me a few weeks ago and I thought we were just going to sort of talk about my my life 2.0 ideas and changes. And he was like, can I see your website? And I was like, why? And he was like, I don't know. I just want to look at it. And so we went over to sit and looked at my website. And he went tab by tab and just absolutely destroyed my website, but not in a nasty way. He was just like, why, are, why is there no SEO here? Why can't I buy these prints? Why is this not connected? Why is there no Patreon? I can't pay with PayPal. Where are your books? Why can't I buy your, all these different things? And I was like, I don't have an answer for you. And so what I devised was something called Operation Improve. And this is point six, I guess, point seven. Operation Improve is what is basically what I'm titling what we just spoke about, is the revamp of AG, the rebuilding of that community. It's the rebuilding of Shifter. It is reassessing my work at Blurb, making that work better, building it out, building out the Blurb content side, um, all channels, motion, copy, stills, everything the culture of blurb, and then also my individual skill set when it comes to graphic design, photography, writing, all of the things that I need, filmmaking in particular, all of the things that I need to improve on. And I drastically need to improve. I feel like a hack in all of these things now. At one point in my life, I was a decent writer. At one point, I was a decent photographer. I'm not anymore because I don't work those muscles anymore. I'm running three days a week, but I don't, I'm not running my photo muscles I'm just, those are atrophying. And so that's Operation Improve is my personal skill set. It's AG23, it's Shifter, and it's Blurb. And it's looking at these going into Web 3.0 and saying, let's, let's do something new. Let's connect these dots and make something. There's also a fifth point that I cannot discuss publicly yet, but there's something else happening. And I was just asked to be on a new advisory board that uh, should be very interesting with a new potential entity slash company. And um, again, not publicly, uh, re not ready for public consumption right now, but that, that just happened last week as well. So that's kind of where I'm at. Now, I was going to do point number seven being um, about Leica cameras. So as you know, I said I was going to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Why not? I shoot Sony. I shoot... Fuji, those are my primary digital camera systems. I use Sony for certain things. I use Fuji for my stills primarily, even though those cameras are, are fine and they shoot you know, beautiful 4K footage. For whatever reason, I love the Fujis as still cameras, and then the Sony works really well for me as a, as a motion camera. Um, I also use it for stills with an adapter with my Leica 50, uh, which is a look I really like, and so I'll be trying to do more of that um, in the future. I also have Leica cameras for, for film for 35, and I have Hasselblad for, for two and a quarter. I rarely, rarely, rarely shoot film anymore. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. It doesn't fit the workflow that I need for, for what I'm doing professionally, and so that's just the reality of the situation. And so, But Leica, I bought my first Leica in 1990 at San Antonio Camera Exchange. I bought a Leica M4P and a 28. And I just knew when I got my hands on a Leica, I knew that camera was built for me. I knew that was the singular camera that I was like, you know what, of all the things I'm doing, and I always had like Canon systems and Nikon systems for commercial stuff along the way. But when, it, when I was left to my own devices, and even in 97, when I quit photography the first time and I sold all my equipment, 
I kept a Leica M6 and a 35. That was the, the one piece of kit that I kept. And then for four years, I just did my own stories and projects and I just used that camera. And at the end of those four years, I was like, okay, now I get it. Now I kind of figure, now I know who I am. But I saw something the other day. A friend walked into my house here in New Mexico with the Leica Q1, which was the first of the Q built-in 28-millimeter uh, cameras. And, and it was sitting on our, our coffee table, and I picked it up, and I was kind of like, wow, you know, the autofocus is really nice. This, and then I shot a couple of frames, and I looked at it, and I was like, wow, this is cool. This is a cool camera. And I knew that another guy that I really like and respect, a guy named Craig Maud out of Japan, I think he uses the Q cameras well. But there's a second version. There's a Q2. And a friend here in town has it. And I was at his house, and it was sitting there. And I was like, well, well I picked this up. This is, this is a cool camera. Like, I, I really like this. This is the first, like, Leica digital that I was like, this is really cool. I, I'd used the Leica rangefinder digitals in the past. Um, I don't remember the number. I think it was maybe a 9, M9. And I was like, I don't love this. For whatever reason, I'm like, mm, not my favorite thing. But the Q with the built-in lens, although the 28 is too wide for me, I'd prefer a 35 or a 50. But I was like, this is really nice. It feels like a rock. It's got a built-in lens, which I like the idea of just saying, look, you only have one lens. That keeps you from geeking out too much. The autofocus was impressive. I was like, wow, this is really cool. So I looked at the Q2 and I was like, I kind of want this camera. And then I saw the price and I was like, oh my God, that is literally my entire bag of equipment. I think it was less it was. My entire bag of equipment with two systems was less than the Q2 cost, which I think was like eight grand. And I was like, oh, it was just like such a dagger to me where I thought, is that real? How, how is it possible? Because I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Fuji GFX, the big 100 megapixels or the 50 megapixels, I want to say those are like three or four grand new. And the Leica was like eight. And I just thought, oh my God, why did you do this to me? Now, my fault for, for looking it up, I already have cameras. And I looked it up. And then I did something even, even worse. I went to the Leica site. And I was like, I haven't been on this site in eons. I stopped looking at what Leica was doing when digital happened because they went crazy like all the other companies, but also the prices of their gear was like, was crazy. And when you consider if you're going to go do a project, you're going to fly halfway around the world. You got to have two bodies. So I was like, wow, to get started in the Leica digital, you're talking about like $20,000. And that's just for a camera that might be obsolete in 18 months. So I was like, wow, okay. And I just stopped paying attention to Leica. And so I went to the Leica site and it looks like Leica as always. Um, think about like sweater vest kind of thing, which is fine. You know, poof, I make a picture. So I found another camera called, I think it's an SL2. And I was like, oh man, this camera has my name all over it. And it takes the lenses I already have. And I think it's a 47 megapixel full frame mirrorless Leica that looks, is very angular. It's the Dolph Lundgren of the Leica, Leica lineup. It's so angled and tight and chiseled and looks like it would be amazing to hold in your hands. And it has this diopter on the viewfinder that looks like my binoculars, which immediately made me fall in love with this camera because 
I love my binoculars as much as anything in my life, and those diopters on there are massive. And I saw that Leica SL2, and I was like, someone who built this was thinking about me. They were thinking about me, let's say 1%, because then I saw the price of that camera as well. And I just felt like someone had, had just punched me in the medulla oblongata. I was like, I lost my motor skills. I was ping-ponging off the walls in the house. I woke up in the garden. I cannot believe how expensive these cameras are, which is just crushing to me because if it was a legitimately priced camera, and look, you, you, you have what the, what the market will bear, so I get it. Leica is a fetish. That, that, the, the cult of Leica and the people who follow that brand are as dedicated and wealthy as any group out there, and I totally get it. But man, I want that camera, but there is no way I'm going to pay that much for a camera. My wife would, would absolutely kill me. I would have just sickening buyer's remorse the second I did it because you can literally buy a car for that same amount. You can buy a Kia for a used Kia easily for that amount of money. And so I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. He's going to keep calling me. He's going to keep calling me. Cameron, get over here and pick me up. So anyway, if, you, if anyone out there has one, just reach out to me and let me know you have one because I just it makes me warm inside to know that someone was able to buy that and then hopefully you're using it to make something good. That would be very interesting. Now, the lenses that are built for the SL2 look enormous, which is the one thing that would not work for me because I don't want to carry something that big. But the fact that I can put my little 50 F2 on there is very exciting. That's really cool. But anyway, I just want to throw that out there for no obvious reason. Uh, just a quick update. Point number eight is the Yamaha TW200. Now has about 600 miles on it. The break-in is complete. I had the oil changed. The thing is an absolute blast. I ride it every day. It is incredibly slow, but it is a lot of fun to ride. Uh, although when the temperature is in the 20s, it is uh, a bit nippy on the bike. And so your hands and feet and legs and face and everything else, you have to just be bundled beyond belief. But the, the T-Dub is awesome. I have not even really begun to use this thing, but I will. I've got tons of ideas of what I want to do with it. And the last point that I'm going to talk about is uh, a bicycle point for you out there who follow me for cycling reasons. You will be happy to know that um, I bought a Brompton folding bicycle. I bought a Flame Lacquer Black Edition S-Bar 6-Speed Brompton, which was on a whim. I had never sat on a Brompton, never rode a Brompton. I bought it while, I was still in, while it was still in the box because I stumbled into a bike shop that's a Brompton retailer, and I asked how difficult it was to get one, and they said very difficult. They had some demo models, and my plan was to ride a demo model. And the woman said to me, by the way, what are you looking for? And I said, lacquer model, black edition, S-bar, six-speed. And she's like, good luck, dude. And then she goes, but wait a minute. We got a shipment of Bromptons in this morning. Hang on a second. Five minutes later, she walks over the box and she goes, I have that exact bike. And I said, I'll take it. And then my wife, being my wife, was like, what are you talking about? You just bought a bicycle? What are you talking about? What kind of bicycle? Look at that thing. Look at those wheels. Oh, my God, it folds up. Where's mine? How come I don't have one of these bicycles? And then she started immediately pointing to different bikes on the rack. I want that one. And the woman's like, that's a titanium model that's like $7,000. And my wife's like, okay, I don't want that one. I want that one. And she's like, nope, that's a $5,000. And so I was like, you know, you guys have this Turkish green. That's my wife's all-time favorite color. And she doesn't want, she wants the H bar, six speed, black edition. And the woman comes back and she goes, I have that too. And my wife's like, I'll take it. And so we have Bromptons. Now, the Brompton is very different from the turn that I had recently that I did a film about. The turn was awesome. I would call the turn the, the bike of the apocalypse. Like that thing is absolutely and utterly bulletproof. 
If you're a commuter, if you're in town and you need racks and fenders and you're going to load it up with groceries and you and it's got a Gates carbon belt drive and a and a, a, a sealed hub, that bike was just impervious. But that bike folds in half and the Brompton folds in thirds. And I can take the Brompton, I kid you not, not on not all the time because I know some some people are going to fight me on this. You can take a Brompton on the plane and put it in an overhead compartment and fly with your bike in the overhead compartment and get off and ride from the airport on your bike. I'd wanted one of these for over a decade. Again, never thought I would get one, especially now during the pandemic. But when the opportunity presented itself, I got it. And my goal is to do trips specific where I fly with the bike, get off at the airport, put my one little bag on the handlebars and ride into a country and go see a country on bicycle. And I have the first country picked out, which is South Korea. That's the first, the first goal. I don't know when this is going to happen. I think COVID's going to be spiraling for at least the next year. I don't think South Korea is letting us pesky, filthy Americans in at the time. I don't blame them. Uh, but that's one of the first places we're going to go. The Brompton has 16-inch wheels, not 20, folds in thirds, and is an absolute blast to ride. I have not seen my wife so excited to ride a bike ever. The second we bought these in Portland and then drove to San Francisco and then drove to New Mexico, if my wife saw a bike trail from the window of the van, she screamed, stop, and we pulled over, unfolded the bikes, and rode. The fold is 10 seconds. It's so smooth and so smart and so slick, and they're absolutely fantastic. They're expensive, but it's a bike that I don't imagine getting rid of anytime soon. I can see having this bike for decades, and um, to me, it's totally worth the money. And it also, when you have to throw in the fact that it's already eliminating X number of car-based trips, which means a lot less fuel, and at 340 a gallon, it adds up really quickly. So the CPU and the, and the ROI... Uh, on this device are actually pretty good. So, and there's also cheaper folding bikes out there if you don't know know about them. But the Brompton is specific. They've been around for 50 plus years. It's a cult bike. There are Brompton clubs all over the world, which is another reason I like the brand is that I can get off the plane in Singapore and I can email the Brompton club in Singapore and people come and hang out. And it's like a subculture around the world, which I find really exciting. Now, in the process of buying the Brompton, when I bought the Brompton, I had the turn in the back of the van. So you're thinking to yourself, dude, how many bikes are you going to have? Well, the turn wasn't mine. It was on loan, and I knew I was going to send it back. The Bromptons, as I mentioned, I bought for a specific reason. But while I was waiting to buy the Brompton, there was the bike shop was just hopping. It was called uh, Clever Cycles in Portland, Oregon. It was hopping. There was one person after another coming in and buying bikes and walking out. Now, Portland is one of the few cities in America that has a real biking infrastructure, which is always a blast to be around. It's really cool to look at. And so I'm looking at this, and there is a turn on the showroom floor called a GSD, which is a turn cargo bike, electric cargo bike. And I looked at this thing, and I'm standing there looking at it. And I think two people came in and bought them while I was standing there, bought turn cargo bikes, wheeled it to the front door and rode away. And I was like, wow, this shop is hopping number one. They're, it's a really cool shop. But I looked at that Turn GSD and I was like, that's the bike I'm getting from Turn because that is a legitimate car replacement. This thing is like a mountain goat. It's like a Sherpa. It will hold everything. It'll hold people on the back. You can outfit it with rigs that'll hold people, shopping stuff. And for me, like where I live here in New Mexico, getting in and out of town is about a 14 mile round trip. And then if I'm loaded, that makes it, you know, loaded with groceries or stuff that I've gone around town to pick up, it's, a, it's hard. I mean, you got to be in decent shape to get in and out of here. 
on my salsa with my panniers on the back, when it's fully loaded, it's a, it is a grind. Throw in the fact windy days, throw in the fact winter, you know, it's, it's not for the faint of heart to like commute on a bicycle here. But the turn, I was like, ooh, that is a really slick thing. That would eliminate multiple trips to town every week in the car. And that to me is really cool to think like, oh, I can hop on this thing. And if I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a real hurry, I can use that electric assist. And also when I'm loaded on the way back, climbing to get back into this neighborhood, I can use that electric assist. Also, the electric assist means I can ride it into town and not be completely soaked in sweat when I get to a meeting in the middle of town. So the Turn GSD Cargo is the bike that I'll probably end up with in the future once my wife's shoulder has healed to the point where she can ride on a regular basis. And that's where we will go from there. So that is for what it's worth for this week. I hope that makes sense to anyone out there. Again, one person with one opinion. Uh, Don't hate me for it. Just love me because I'm beautiful.